With inspirational guests from across the world, this is Inspire Radio. Hello and welcome to Inspired Conversations with me, Ruth Owen. Today, my guest is Ias Alkasim, who founded a company called Beyond the Quarter about four years ago. Ias has led businesses from startup to teams of 500 people, and his belief is that business should lead the way in creating a better world. No better time than right now. He helps leaders build companies that are human, profitable, and sustainable. So welcome, Ias. It's great to have you here. Well, thank you very much for having me. Tell us, how did Beyond the Quarter begin? So the direct story, actually, is that I'd gone through building businesses and consultancies for about 15 years or so before. And I'd always, just because of the way that I'd been brought up and, and my own personal experiences, I'd always led them with a, with a set of fairly clear values. And I'd always find that that served me well. So uh, even at one point when um, you know I, I had to lead a turnaround, I, I took on a team um, after my company had been acquired. I took on a team that was hemorrhaging horribly. We'd lost nearly half the team in the space of a year. And, you know, that kind of experience can take, a, can take a company under. And so I took that on from the person who was leading it and essentially did something very simple, which was to say that, yeah, values matter to me. Uh, and I'm going to translate that into, into how we work as a company. What I then did was, having said it, I then went and did it, which is quite often the missing connect between, between yeah. our intentions <laughs> and reality. And it ended up turning the team around. So we grew from around 60 people to nearly 200. We took a churn rate of, I was, as I mentioned, I lost 40% of the team, nearly half the team the year before. By the time we were at 200, uh, we were losing 6% of the team. So essentially three times the size, losing half as many people. And that was about as clear a lesson to me as any about the, the real role of values and how values can make a difference in business. Well, um, a lot of businesses do have a set of values and, and their mission statement. And, but absolutely. how does that translate into action? Well, and that's the real challenge, right? Because it's, uh, it's very easy to put, to put I call them the, uh, the, the dolphin fin on the wall posters with, uh, you know, integrity or honesty or passion or, 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 or whatever the company value is. And it's, there's nothing easier than creating the poster and putting, uh, putting words out on a website. The reality is that unless companies take explicit action to translate those things into reality, then what they've articulated actually ends up underserving them. And what I mean by that is there have actually been studies looking at the correlation between values and financial performance. Now, those of us who believe in values will be not surprised at all to find out that actually companies that live their values do outperform the market. The interesting thing for me was that uh, companies who'd articulated a set of values and then didn't do anything about translating those into reality, actually underperformed the average. So you're almost better off not saying anything about values and purpose if you plan to do nothing about it than, uh, than saying it, because you're just articulating it without the action actually underserves the company. Now, what does that mean in reality? So first thing for me is that yeah, the values need to be authentically felt. It's really hard to act out on a set of values that, that, you, don't, that you don't believe in. And authentically felt doesn't necessarily mean that they're always lived. I mean, we're all on our own values journey. I mean, I'm no paragon of virtue like nobody else is. You know, we all have, we all, we've all probably let ourselves down at some point. The real, if actually they are a real aspiration that we're continually working towards, that for me makes it valid. So from a company perspective, if you've said your values are a certain thing, then, then, then what I would do is I would say, let's assess our leaders. Do our leaders actually genuinely live those values? 
Let's assess our teams. Let's assess our recruitment policies. Do our values appear in our recruitment policies? So, you know, there's a real obsession about cultural fit in companies. You know, are we, are we, are we hiring the right culture? The reality for me is, and, and I've found this out from, you know, probably having interviewed over a thousand people that are, in the end, I was leading a, a team of around 500. It's really hard to properly assess for culture fit, but it's actually quite easy to assess for values fit. And in the end, values ends up defining the culture. So how it translates into reality is in how you lead. And it's also in do your, do your processes actually reflect your values. And that was an interesting, for me, uh, interesting thing for me as well from experience that, you know, I was a consultant and consultants, we live on a daily basis. Uh, at the end of the day, you always fill in a timesheet. It's a really simple procedural thing. Dull, you just go into a spreadsheet or an application and you say, I spent six hours today working with such and such a client and this is what I did. Straightforward. When we got acquired by a large corporation, which had a, quite a different value set, and I'm not going to say it's better or worse, it was just a different value set to the one that we had. I instantly changed, along with my sort of 300 consultants at the time, I instantly changed from Ias al Qasim to part number 85712. And on that timesheet that I would fill in every day, that's what I would have to fill in. I would have to fill in against that part number. Now, it sounds like a really innocuous thing, but it sends out a really strong message. See, you were actually, you actually became a number rather than a name. Yeah, quite literally. Yeah. Well, because it was actually, it was a good reason for it. They were a product company. They weren't a company of people as we were, of consultants as we were. So I understand it. I disagree with it, but I understand it. But what it does is it sends out a really strong message that says precisely, as you said, you are no longer really a person. You are just a part in this big machine. And that played out actually eventually in terms of, you know, the way that that company was run and some of the decisions that we were with, that we had to make. And so really it was off the back of all of that that I decided actually there needs to be a better way for us to be doing business. You know, we seem to have forgotten that businesses are there to serve humanity. We've kind of switched that round and, and made humans the slaves of businesses. Yes. And that, you know, the main driver of, of, of capitalist thought since probably since Friedman in the, in, in the early 70s is that you know, we are here to serve a business. We're all trying to make a better capitalism, whereas the reality is it's, it's capitalism that should be making for better humanity. And, and we've flipped the means and, and, and means and ends around. But did and we so ever that, have that premise at the beginning? Um, or, or was capitalism always about self-enrichment rather than being of benefit to the wider community? I mean, that's a raging, that's clearly a raging economic debate. What, what you can clearly say or clearly see is in its early days, there was certainly a lot more humanity uh, about forms of capitalism than, than there is today. And, I, and when I say the early days, I'm not here talking about the days of child labor and sending, sending our kids down the mines, mm. because, yeah, obviously that was absolutely about uh, yeah, enrichment of the owners at, at cost be damned. But certainly by the uh, late 19th century, uh, early to mid 20th century, uh, we had moved to a far more benevolent form of capitalism, which was around raising the lot of individuals. But what happened uh, primarily in the 70s and, and then with Thatcherite economics and, and, and Reaganomics and so on was we really switched the model to make the shareholder not only the primary, but sometimes the only real beneficiary of the company. And that's a bad switch because at that point, we're no longer really using capitalism to raise humanity, to raise planet, to raise uh, yeah, environment. We are using it purely to enrich certain individuals. Um, 
and, and that's why Beyond the Quarter came about, because, you know, our mission actually is, is to create a world where business serves humanity rather than people serving business. Because I think the time is rife for that. We're seeing the destruction around us in terms of social injustice, environmental impact. It's there every day and it's uh, yeah, blatantly there during COVID now. And the thing that we need to be doing is, is, is not, in my books, overthrowing capitalism. It's to put it on a course where it's serving a serving humanity at large. Well, if you look at the 19th century, you, you, you were talking about businesses in, in the 19th century. People like Joseph Roundtree in York, he rebuilt a lot of houses around the factory to house his employees so they had a better quality of life, so they became more productive. So he was probably one of the, the first proponents of this benevolent form of capitalism. So how come that's not really the norm anymore? in your view? Well, I think increasingly, uh, and especially with, um, I think things really change, especially when you become listed. Uh, Once you're trading on on some stock exchange, we've changed the mentality of of ownership from people who are investors in a company to people who trade its shares. And I think that's really become the, that's, that's really the shift that's happened is that people now, I mean, most of us in some way or form, if we've got savings, yeah, those savings are invested by the bank in companies that the vast majority of us have no clue what those companies are. And what's being looked for is a return on that investment. And that is, yeah, pure and simple. The single consideration is, is what percentage return am I gonna, am I gonna get to give back to the investors? And I think that's the switch that's really happened is alongside that, the fact that, you know, we can trade shares daily. And, and you and I can do that. It doesn't, it's not just the, uh, it, it's not just the, the large houses. I mean, we can obviously set up a li- an, an online account and, and trade daily. And when you're trading, you've lost all sight of what it is that you're actually investing in. Because yeah. really what you're monitoring is, is the number. You're looking at, you know, am I going to make 20% on this this year? Is this a, is this a quote unquote five bagger? You know, am I, am I going to get five times my investment? When you're looking at it purely in those terms, we've gone to the, the, the numeric perspective of what businesses are, that, that business is just there to generate a number for me. A lot of the motions in the financial markets over the last, uh, you know, certainly since the 80s have driven us down this path where it's, it's, it's more about the return than it is about what the business does. I think that's very true. But do you also think that this pandemic is an opportunity for a reset, a rethink and a redesign perhaps of how we run our capitalist markets? Yeah. I mean, this, this pandemic is giving us the opportunity to learn so many lessons. The real thing is to make sure that we actually pay attention and learn those lessons and do something with them. So, so yes, this, this pandemic is giving us uh, quite a lot of opportunities. Now, clearly there's disruption pretty much at every level in society and the economy and in government. And in times of disruption, that's really the time in which one can take a step back and look hard about what one wants to rebuild. You know, if you, if you think even at, uh, at the most physical, uh, physical destructive form of, you know, war, a carpet bombing, well, guess what? You then rebuild and you can rebuild beautiful architecture or you can rebuild something that's, uh, uh, that's ugly and that doesn't inspire hope in, in, in humanity and in the people who live in it. And that's essentially what we're going through with the pandemic right now. Uh, businesses are having to rethink. Every business is having to rethink. 
Some of them are rethinking because actually it's thrown up opportunity. I mean, not all businesses are having to rethink because they're in dire straits. There are a number of companies for whom the pandemic has actually created opportunity. Yeah. But whether it's created opportunity or created havoc, you're having to rethink right now. And my perspective on that is if you are having to put together a new strategy for your business, and you are because we're all in crisis, going to recession, and then there'll be recovery, hopefully, then that's the time at which you you should strike and put purpose and values at the core of your business and commercial strategy. Because if you don't do it now, if you wait until you know you've solved, you you focus purely on solving an immediate cash crisis, then you'll have missed the boat in terms of in terms of writing the business. We'll be back in the same trajectory that we've been for the last uh, sort of forty or fifty years. Yes, but if you're leading a, a business and you are responsible for several hundred employees, or it may be just 20 or even 10, you have a sense of responsibility, isn't that right, for, for your employees? And so isn't the focus naturally going to be for every business leader, how can I preserve what I have? How can I help my employees? And maybe they don't have the vision to look beyond that to see where they should be redesigning their business. So here's an interesting thing with that. And again, this is a lesson that COVID has given us that, that previous recessions and crises haven't. The first place that most employees should be looking, and in fact, where I think a lot of them are looking, is at their team from a human perspective. So I've seen a huge amount of concern about, you know, where we're going to have remote work. And why am I going to have remote work in the first place? Well, it's to keep my team safe. So immediately, the first thing we've had to do is actually look at the health and well-being of our employees. Right. Yes. And that's an interesting thing about this crisis, because previous crises, we haven't had that dimension. Previous crises, it's gone straight to cash flow. And sure, a part of that cash flow is about is about saving jobs, although I venture that for a lot of companies, it's uh, it's it's again, it's more about future profitability than necessarily saving jobs. But that's a separate debate. But this one has actually forced us to put humanity at the center of our policy. Now, in terms of that response, that means that we have two areas to look at straight away. And we've been forced to look at both of those areas. One is our humanity, and essentially that's team, although I'd venture that there's other aspects that we, can, we should be looking at, and some companies have been. And the second is cash flow, because we kind of need both of those intact for the company to, to, to survive. Now, if that's the case, and we are looking at um, you know, cash flow in terms of where do we cut, where do we save, If we're doing that as companies without a future view, then we might be cutting in the wrong places. We might actually end up, and this was an experience that we had. In fact, the turnaround that I did was coming out of a recession. We'd actually managed to survive the recession, but because of the decisions that had been made previously during that recession, we had no loyalty coming out of it. And so the company nearly went bankrupt in recovery. And that was directly because people didn't think about the future and the human, the human aspect of how they manage their cash flow. So for me, it's actually it's a holistic thing. It's yes, we have to manage cash flow because if we don't have cash flow, we're not going to have a business. But we have to manage it in a way that gives us longevity. We can't manage it in a way that means we're going to be continually hand to mouth every week. Uh, and as soon as you have that perspective on it, then you start to make different decisions. We'll take a short break. We'll come back after the break and talk more to ES. Be happy, be inspired. This is Inspire Radio. Inspire Radio. 
online 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This is Inspire Radio. You know, we're all about helping make a positive difference to people's lives. We launched January 20th, 2020, and we now have listeners in 28 countries across the world. Maybe if you're a lifestyle brand, work in the areas of personal development, health and well-being, maybe you'd like us to help share your message to the listeners of Inspire Radio, not just here in the UK, but across the world. If you would, just drop us an email, simply email steve at inspireradio.co.uk. Tell you what, let's enjoy a uh, cappuccino moment or green tree moment via Zoom. And let's have a chat. So once again, if you'd like to know more, just drop me an email, steve at inspireradio.co.uk. Let's help make a positive difference to people's lives across the world. Attention, please. We at HealthSpan would like to tell you something that, quite possibly, you didn't already know. Not all supplements are created equal. I know. Who'd have thought? We travel the entire globe to find the best ingredients for our vitamins and supplements, from the southern slopes of India for our turmeric to the cold, crisp seas of Greenland for our cod liver oil. Because that's the HealthSpan way. Well, there you go. It's not every day you learn something new, is it? We're HealthSpan. That's healthspan.co.uk. Vitamins and supplements, in-store or direct to your door. This is Inspire Radio. Inspire Radio. Hello and welcome back to Inspired Conversations. My guest, Ias, was talking before the break about how businesses deal with coming out of this pandemic and what they should concentrate on. So, Ias, my question is, if businesses are faced with a very, very tough decision about whether to keep on all their employees or let some of them go and then use that cash to redesign, how would you say they should go about it? The reality is, I think, and this is where I come back to the to, to the to taking a holistic perspective. If we're in a position that we uh, need to conserve cash, and I think this again is where you know, a lot of companies are knee jerking. You know, there are ways to try and pre- to try and prevent cutting deeper than you need to by looking forward, and then I can come back to that in a, in a bit. But if you're in a position where uh, you have to cut, and one of the considerations is whether you let people go then I would, again, take a step back, not respond without thinking (laughs) or not respond instinctively because everybody thinks of cuts in terms of people. But I would step back and say, okay, well, if I'm going to have to make some cuts, I need to make those from a perspective of a business that's going to be surviving strong out of this. So what does that business need to look like? And this isn't a process that need to take, needs to take weeks because, frankly, we haven't got weeks uh, if, if, you're, if, if you've found yourself in that scenario. You know, it can be done something, it can be something that's done relatively quickly. So stand back and say, what is the purpose of my business? What's my business here to do? What's my business going to be here to do over the next year, five, 10 years? What, why are we here? Why do we deserve to be here? And if you understand that clearly enough, then that's going to guide the decision with regards to whether it's right to cut heads or to look for cuts elsewhere, or indeed how deep to cut. Or indeed, what shape the cut should take even, you know, is it, is it a furlough or is it a redundancy? Mm. Or is it moving people into areas that are going to fuel future growth? So there's a whole number of options, but to instinctively respond with, you know, we need to cut X percent and therefore that's going to have to translate to 30 job losses is to really not even look at the interests of the company. So I would say that it's, it's never a straightforward decision and it should never be the, the instinctive response. 
And I think the, the, the issue is that we've quite often seen it as the instinctive response because we know it's relatively easy to do. Um, and in fact, that was, you know, my parting experience with uh, the corporation that acquired us was when I was asked to make uh, cuts in, in my team uh, because the company hadn't met its quarterly targets, its quarterly earnings um, uh, forecast. Now, there were actually better decisions, better responses we could have taken to that. And I spoke to a, um, my boss, having been acquired at that point by, by a larger company, I spoke to the, to the boss who'd taken my team on. Uh, and I had a conversation with her, and the conversation was, we can fix this in a different way. And the way we can fix it is actually to look at the sales engine. Uh, and generate more revenue that will keep the team busy. But her response was, that's not going to help the quarter. This is the quarterly number. You need to give me 30 names. Um, wow. and, that's, uh, and that ended up triggering my resignation because, uh, you know, one thing they did do was they paid me quite well <laughs> post-acquisition. So I knew you know, I put my name ahead of that list and hopefully saved, well, I know it saved like two or three other jobs in, in the process, but I, I couldn't come to... Uh, my conscience wouldn't have been clear carrying on working under that, uh, that kind of paradigm. But there are, other, there are always other answers. And if there aren't, that's when you need to look at heads. And even then, it's like, well, where are they going to go? In which, if, if I'm going to lose to your scenario 50%, which 50% is it going to be? And even if it is 50%, and I've been through, you know, I have actually done redundancies where there weren't any other options. It's always, can you do that as humanely as possible? Uh, what can you do to help your staff as they're going? Uh, does it have to be statutory minimum? If it does, it does. But I would certainly look to see whether there are other options. If, uh, if you're letting them know, can you help them find new work? Can you use your contact base? Can you put them in touch with your best recruiters? So there's always ways, even if you have to do it, to do it more humanely. But underpinning all of that, it's yeah, let's only do it if we can do it in a way that's going to um, serve our longer term trajectory. And that longer term trajectory has to be, in my view, has to be centered around a purpose and a set of values. I think you are absolutely right that we're going to all have to evaluate where we go and how we move forward. And I just wanted to ask you, where do you see the future of business going? Do you see it becoming much more humanity-centered and beneficial to the world? Or do you see a bit of a cutthroat scenario where people are just trying to survive and, and keep companies going? I personally, I like to take a more proactive view. I find looking at, a, at the question in that light doesn't help me. And I'll tell you what I mean by that is it's really easy for us to, have to take a perspective of um, either, yes, it's all going to be great. We're going to create the new normal. And I see this a lot. I see a lot of people posting, I hope this is going to be the moment. And, um, you know, new normal has become you know, a phrase almost uh, as prevalent as PPE shortages right now. But it's all within the paradigm of, yeah, let's hope that there's going to be change. Let's hope that uh, we've learned the lessons, et cetera, et cetera. I also see some people saying that the, the, the forces of capitalism are too strong uh, and we're going to come out of this and it's going to look exactly the same. I personally won't even make a call on which way it'll be. I personally will look at it and say, what am I going to do? And I think that's the most important question that everybody has to look at right now is, not so much, is it going to be a better world or is it going to be a worse world? But what am I going to do to make it a better world? And I want to stop hoping. <laughs> can't remember who it was who said hope is not a strategy. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> um, I want to stop hoping. I want to start doing. And I think that's where most people, if we want to change that hope into reality, we have to stop hoping, actually. I mean, we need to have hope, but we need to stop depending on hope. We need to actually start doing. We need to start mobilizing. 
So will business be better? Will it be worse? Well, I don't know. It's a coin toss. But I genuinely don't really spend too much time looking at that. I spend more time thinking about what can I do right now that's going to make business better because now is the opportunity in which we can make that impact. So when I say, um, yeah, we need to act now. So as business leaders, and most of the people I work with are business leaders. I, you know, I work primarily with CEOs and leadership teams to try and help them through this. Um, you know, we've developed a specific framework, which is holistically about going right from cash flow to purpose and investment in, in the long term and doing it in one fell swoop. But w- what does it mean right now? I would, I would look at two dimensions. One is what gains have we already made because we've had to do them that we can keep post-COVID. So let me make that, take that out of the abstract and into the real. So for instance, yeah, the, the one that's hit most people is the working remotely. If you, I know when I say most people, I mean people who managed to keep their jobs. So clearly the number haven't. But a lot of companies have suddenly discovered remote working. And they've been resistant to that in the past and resistant for a whole variety of reasons. Some of them good, some of them less good. You know, the good ones, I would say, are ones such as, you know, belief that actually people being together, there's a form of community with us physically being together. I'd say there's there's clearly some truth in that. But there are some less good reasons, which are, yeah, I don't trust my team if I can't see them working in front of me. Uh, Well, guess what? If you're one of those bosses, you've had to learn to trust your team when they're not in the same room as you, right? That option, yeah. Absolutely. And, 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 and again, guess what? We've found in most instances that they've, do, they've continued to do their job and in a lot of instances doing their job better. And from their perspective, they're doing it in a more human way because they've lost the hour commute on some smelly tube in the morning and are spending more time with their families. So we've had a lesson foisted on us that actually remote working is not, uh, is, is not the, does not mean the collapse of our businesses and in fact quite the opposite. Um, yeah, I'm working with a client who who were convinced that they uh, they needed to print every contract that goes out to their uh, to their customers and uh, and then have another copy that they would that, that they would file in house and and yes they are aware of the technology revolution but they still believed that this was something that their clients really wanted to see well guess what no printers uh, they've had to go into digital signing and they found that actually that works quite well. Mm. So I'm talking to, uh, to their IT director and saying to him, you know, actually, maybe what we should be doing is, is heading into your office the day before everyone goes back. And uh, rather like uh, Cortez burnt the ships, let's take the printers out and ceremoniously burn them in, in front of the building so that nobody uses them when they get back. Um, but there are some things that, have ha- that we've been forced to do, which are an improvement. So I'd say the first thing I'd look at is, can I keep some of those as uh, the world eases up? And we don't know what eases up looks like, but in whatever scenario, there are some things that we've learned that I'm sure we can maintain. So how can we make that happen? And then the second thing I would do is then the longer term one. Uh, and that is coming back to, you know, what does my commercial strategy look like if purpose is at the heart of it? But by doing both things, we're both creating a momentum that's immediate based on where we've already, where, where we find ourselves as well as building a longer-term vision of where we want to get to. And what, in your view, are the values of these newborn companies coming out of the pandemic? What are the values that will stand the test of time and bring their people with them in their mission? It's interesting. There's the work that's been done on values and values and businesses finds that there's actually only nine buckets of values, if you will. And what I mean by a bucket is, you know, if you're talking about honesty, integrity, um, you know, there'd be many words that you can fit into that bucket. 
the things that make a difference tend not to be which ones, and this is an odd thing to say, but the things that tend to make a difference aren't which values you've adopted, but whether you've actually turned those values into reality. No correlation between um, you know, companies that have said openness and uh, integrity are our key values with any kind of performance. What there is, is a strong correlation between companies that have said openness and integrity and then gone and done something about those and performance. So what those values are, I mean, they, you know, they'll always boil down to some very basic ones. And, and I think the core ones at the moment are both uh, you know, values and purpose related, which are about human, humanity and the environment. We're in a, you know, we've got a generation of people who are very aware of that, thankfully. Yeah. And uh, if you want to carry your people with you and you're not A, articulating values that relate to those and B, demonstrating how you're going to make them real, then you're unlikely to take those people with you. And you probably don't deserve not to in my view. Yes. I was going to mention that an article you had written mentioned that people on LinkedIn, for example, are are very happy to discuss humanity-based things and very supportive of that. But when it comes to taking the hard decisions and really looking at what leaders need to do as well as supporting their teams is less open. Uh, People are reluctant to discuss that. Why do you think that is? Yeah, there is... um... There's been a trend probably over the last 10 years and a welcome trend in terms of uh, yeah, expecting leaders to be more authentic, vulnerable, all those, all those great things, um, which I, I believe in strongly. And I think if you haven't been in a position of significant responsibility, and that's whether it's you know, your business, charity, <laughs> football team, whatever it is, you probably haven't experienced some of the decisions that need to be made. And so what I find is that um, there's a real segmentation in terms of people's appreciation of that. I think if you haven't been in those roles, it's hard to appreciate what some of those decisions look like. And that's an unpopular thing to say, because most people uh, haven't yet gone to leading businesses or, or leading large teams or so on. And so they haven't been faced with some of those decisions. And when you look at an audience like LinkedIn, which has people who are both business leaders as well as just people who work in business, the vast majority haven't been there. And, the, and so when you talk about the ugliness of some of the decisions that you have to make when you're a leader, there isn't really a willingness to engage with that. There's a lot more willingness to engage with the, as, the other aspects of leadership, you know, the, the, the servant leadership that I hugely believe in, um, you know, humility and, 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 and vulnerability and authenticity. There's a, everybody can relate to that. What people find harder to relate to is actually, you know, the decision that you threw in front of me earlier of you've not got cash. Are you going to let half your team go? And guess what? Someone's going to make that decision Um, because if you don't make that decision, then you let the whole team go. And that's a tough decision to make. That's not to say that it can be taken without values. You absolutely put values at the center of how you make that decision, but it's still a tough decision. And so people tend not to engage with that because that's not something that they've been forced into. And, and leadership just becomes, you know, leadership now is really hard. I, I love it. <laughs> I have to say, I, I love the, the opportunity that it creates to make proper lasting change, but it is really hard. And it's especially hard in times of crisis because we do need to be compassionate at the same time as we need to make these tough decisions. There is no more traumatizing part in my professional career that I can think of than having to do redundancies. I'm sure that would be true for many a a leader. Absolutely. Nothing comes close. Having to look at, and especially for me, I've always run very people-centric teams. I've got to know my teams. I know who their families are. I know their situations. I know where they've come from. To have to sit down in front of somebody 
and tell them that through no fault of their own, they're about to lose their job is a really hard thing to do. But that's a part of leadership. It's not the part of leadership we like, and it's not the part of leadership that anybody likes to talk about, but it's there. And it's also possibly the best thing that might happen to somebody, because as you said earlier, when you're a leader, it's about doing what you can do. It's not about looking at the big picture and and seeing what everybody else and what the trend is. It's doing your best where you are. And isn't that true of the individual as much as it is for the business leader? It's for me. It's a. It's just a basic human principle. If you wanna, if you wanna lead a life uh, that is fulfilling and satisfying to you, you need to be aware of the things that you can't control, but you can't obsess about them because that's a certain road to to unhappiness. And that's whether you're a leader, uh, um, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're human uh, and you're constantly obsessing about the things that you can't change, then that's a certain road route to unhappiness and ineffectiveness, actually. Uh, and, you know, the, the obsession with the news cycle is a part of that. So I, I'll watch the news, but I'm not obsessing about it. Yeah, I'll see it uh, once in the morning and I'll catch some headlines in the evening. But I'm not going to be constantly watching a news feed for what the latest thing about the pandemic is, because frankly, that's not where my time is best spent in terms of either the impact that I can make or the fulfillment that I get. No, it doesn't serve a purpose other than to promote fear, really. Which is part of the reason I love the, the, the Inspire Radio mission. I'm glad you said that, yes. I think there's, there's such a need for people to have a strategy of hope. I mean, you, you were talking about this earlier, that hope is not a strategy, but it's a way of moving forward with positivity and with the intention of creating something good out of what is a disaster. Yes, absolutely. And I think if you're a leader, you know, and I'm, I, I choose my words carefully, hope, hope isn't a strategy, but hope is an enabler, right? So if you're a leader right now, there's five things in my books that you need to be doing. You need to be, unsurprisingly, given where all of this interview has gone, first, you need to be leading with your values. Second is you need to be shining a light in the darkness, which is the hope piece for me. You need, your team is not going to go anywhere if it, if it has no hope. <laughs> the third is you need to inspire confidence because you know, hope without confidence is fantasy, right? You actually need to have your team and yourselves believing that there's a way through to, to achieve that hope. The fourth is to be open. Uh, none of us are going to do this alone. And so, you know, the best leaders are looking to their teams and are open to suggestions. They're not taking uh, some kind of a dictatorial stance. They are talking to their teams about how to move forward. And the fifth is, is to communicate, over-communicate you know, very visibly, very regularly. And, and by communicate, I mean not talk, but communicate. I, I had somebody ask me is that whether I knew any leaders who over-communicated. And, uh, and, and my response was, I don't know any who've over-communicated, but I know a lot who've over-talked. <laughs> and, and I've probably been guilty of that on occasion as well, hand up. Uh, but the key thing is communicate and be able to listen and see where people are. I think those are the five key traits in a leader, in a leader right now to help us through this crisis. And guess what? All of those translate to really practical things. So leading with values, yeah, you need to be able to articulate what they are and have a way to translate them into, into um, what the company does. And as I say, you can do that by how you lead and you can do that by your processes. If you're going to shine light in the darkness, if you're going to give hope, well, you can't give a hope if, if you haven't got a purpose. People hope towards something. So you've got to be able to articulate what that purpose is. And guess what? That's actually a relatively straightforward thing to do. And if you can articulate that purpose, you can start providing hope. If you want to inspire confidence as the third thing, have a plan. So we feel you know, confidence to us comes from certainty. 
if you feel more certain about something, you'll feel more confident. Now, none of us has any certainty about what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone in six months' time with regards to the pandemic. But we can certainly have a certainty with regards to our response to it. And once you have that, you develop the confidence that that will take a team with you. Openness is a, and communication are both then about talking to your team and make and involving them, not just making them feel involved, but genuinely involving them in the direction of where you want to go. So, so all of these things that may sound intangible can be, you know, there's a, you know, there, there's a real action list, if you will, a task list that one can generate that translates all of those things into reality. Yeah, and it's a partnership moving forward. It's not it's not about telling people how to move forward. It's a process, isn't it? A collaborative process. It is a process. My one caveat would be you still need to be confident and showing a, or leading with some form of direction. Now, you get to that collaboratively, absolutely. But in the end, if you're dithering as a leader and you don't really know where to go and, and being over vulnerable, if you will, you're unlikely to take a team with you in crisis. So I think like most aspects of humanity, there's times when certain things come more to the fore than others. And right now, I'd say confidence over vulnerability and openness in terms of sort of compensating and taking the team with you. But absolutely, it's a collaborative approach. But if, if the team feels you're not going anywhere, you know, I keep picturing you, know, Winston Churchill, <laughs> coming on, on the radio and telling people rather telling people that, um, you know, we're not entirely sure what's going to happen, where the axe is going to go. Um, but uh, you know what? I've not done this before, and I'd, I'd, I'd be quite interested in your perspective on it. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure he'd have taken a nation with him. <laughs> I don't think so. No, I think you're right. So thank you so much to E.S. Al-Qasim for joining us today. It's been wonderful talking to you about leaders, leadership, and where business goes and what business is really about. Be happy, be inspired. With inspirational guests from across the world, this is Inspire Radio. Inspire Radio. Inspire Radio.